Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we engage in conversations about uh, theology, culture, and the church, uh, for the life of the church. I'm joined uh, this week by Alistair Roberts and Matt Anderson. Andrew is off being biblical somewhere, we don't know what, uh, but, but we're uh, taking, up, taking up the conversation without him. Uh, today we're going to be discussing an issue that might, on the surface, seem not explicitly theological, but, but I, we hope to show that as, we, as the conversation proceeds, um, this has ramifications for the life of the church and just uh, the life of the discipleship in general. Um, talking about the issue of relatability and, and kind of like the, 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 the craze for re- relatability in a sense, that the conversation got started like a week or two ago when Ira Glass uh, tweeted out after, after, an, after uh, watching uh, John Lithgow appear in King Lear, uh, he tweeted out this response, Shakespeare sucks. Or, uh, and then after that, he followed up such genius with no stakes, not relatable. And, and his whole thing was Shakespeare's works, while they can be acted out brilliant, they can be funny, uh, they're not really relatable. We don't really have a stake in them, so they're not that great. Uh, and and this, this provoked some responses, uh, well, around the internet. The, the one that was most shared around was an article by Rebecca Mead in The New Yorker and uh, called The Scourge of Relatability, and we'll, and we'll link that. But the, the whole thing, um, the whole thing was fascinating after, I, 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 I told the guys, I told you guys earlier, I didn't pay attention to this until we said we were going to talk about it because I just heard about the tweet and then that people were arguing against it and I thought, well, well, that's obviously dumb. I'm, I, I, Shakespeare doesn't suck. This is idiotic. And so I just moved on. But then in reading it, <laughs> understanding the, the issue, it's a fascinating discussion. So I'm just going to quickly hand it over. Um, Matt, Alistair, do you guys want to weigh in on, on what you guys see the central kind of issue in the conversation about whether or not a piece is relatable, what the, what the, what the, the scourge of relatability, as Rebecca Mead puts it, uh, and so forth, fellas? I think what I think perhaps central to it is the idea that our fiction should be something that we see ourselves within, that it should be either a selfie or a mirror of ourselves. And I think this comes a different a number of different perspectives. It's not just that we find it hard to identify with a work, but we are increasingly seeing works that are written for a purpose of ident- identification. So, for instance, in the social justice work of fiction, the need for characters that we can identify with in TV shows, in novels, etc., and a lot of tokenism that happens through this. So we need more um, non-white or non-American female gay, trans, queer, whatever, fill-in-the-gap superheroes, when what we really need is fewer superhero movies. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know about fewer superhero movies, Alistair. That's, that's, uh, that's maybe pushing a little far. But I get what you're saying, that the, the, the gap there, that you need every little niche to be filled so that you can have some, exp- some, some character that you can relate to. I need a 28-year-old college pastor in Orange County. Otherwise, I can't, I don't have any literature that I can fully identify with and be immersed in and and, and, and kind of get affirmed that way or, or mirrored that way. Uh, Matt? Yeah, I think that's, that's an interesting point, as always, from Alistair. One of the things that fascinated me about this issue is um, when I 
I taught high school for a couple of years, and I taught the Lord of the Rings. And in Lord of the Rings, in the novels, um, uh, there's a lot of characters like, like Faramir. Faramir is a great example for pressing the relatability hypothesis. In the books, Faramir is the only one who's not tempted by the ring. He, um, he's pure of heart, as it were. He, he's, he has a, a level of integrity that um, is amazing. In the movies, uh, Faramir is tempted by the ring. Um, and he, in fact, takes it for a while, and it's a total deviation from the plot. I remember talking with my students about this, and their comment was that they, they couldn't relate to the Faramir of the books. They couldn't, um, it wasn't real. It wasn't sort of true to life for them that a character would not be tempted by this great power. And I think it, it sums up for me the scourge of relatability. Um, in one sense, purity of heart shouldn't be relatable to us. It should meet us as foreign. It should meet us as alien to us. And in one sense, I, I don't want to, to find goodness relatable to me. I, wanna, I, I want to see it as very different than what I am, because then I think I learned something. Um, I think that under that context, I actually have my horizons broadened, and I see new things about the world. But, you know, if, if the paradigmatic or if the prime value of narratives and of stories is, do these things relate to me, um, we're, we're just going to have a very narrow, weirdly, we either have the tokenism that uh, Alistair sets out, or we just have very narrow uh, accounts of the world that already fit our preconceived notions about what life should be like. Um, so it's, the, 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 yeah, the whole thing troubles me in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, the, the, there's, a, there's a narcissism to, uh, sin, sin is essentially narcissistic. It's, it's self-focused and this can happen even, I don't wanna say a, a kid saying Shakespeare's not that great is sin, although it is. Um, but, but there's this element of, of sin leads you to shrink everything to your perspective. Right. If it's if it, it 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 naturally pushes back on any attempt to like you say expand our horizons, it wants to shrink everything to a certain level of sameness that's not different, that's not other, that that, that doesn't expand us out. Like you you talked about Faramir, and I think instead of Lewis and Paralandra, the book Paralandra, I mean Lewis is one of those geniuses in that he is one of the only people I know who can believably think through like the consciousness of a non-fallen being like i can i can through that through his literary work imaginatively step out of my very selfish very you know whatever self into what it's like for someone who who naturally just is is in constant communion with god and is is exploring the given world and exploring their own reactions in a, in a non-fallen way and that's fascinating and illuminating and and um and i think in some ways sanctifying uh you know the sanctification of, of the you know sanctification of, of the christian life happens at has to happen at all levels and one of the most important levels is the imagination we we in a sense if you can't imagine a different kind of existence than what you have you don't know if you can't imagine what uh what a life submitted to the spirit would even look like wouldn't feel like at all 
then there's a sense where you won't push into it. So uh, that element of the relatability piece, um, if it's not just like me, it's not relatable, it, it, and it's not interesting, um, there's that element where reading, I was reading Chesterton recently, it, it shows a lack of, of thirst for, for difference. It shows a lack of, of, of interest in the world because the world is mostly different from your experience in a sense. So your very limited, tiny experience. So I think there is a disparity between good and evil with respect to relatability. And Lewis actually has a letter somewhere where he, he talks about, um, how much harder it is to imagine good characters than it is to imagine characters who are um, evil, who are twisted or deformed in some way. Uh, and his point is something like, you know, it's it's your point. It's we have a harder time imagining things that are unlike us, and so we can get inside of our own dark thoughts, our own sort of evil thoughts, more easily than we can get inside of someone's good, someone else's good thoughts. Um, and I'm not sure that's entirely right, but it's interesting. And I, I think it really does mean that um, there's a sense in which relatability, if that is the primary characteristic, it will always incline itself. The stories that are geared in that direction will always be of the sort that... Um, are aimed at highlighting the darkness or the, that, that, that are less good in some ways. That's, that's a hypothesis. I'm not sure I'm going to stand by that at the end of the day. Alistair? Your point that you made about the um, importance of the exercise of the imagination and Matt's earlier point about expanding our horizon, horizons, I think those points are crucial. Um, so, for instance, I think about this common trope that you see in movies of the strong female character. Now, very few people set out to write strong male characters. What they seek to write are just characters that are interesting, that that move the plot ahead, etc. They're not intended to be relatable or anything. They're intended to be um, characters that are intrinsically interesting. They're dynamic characters. They affect events. And also that they expand the imagination in various ways. So no one would approach a character like um, Sherlock Holmes, say, and argue that he must be strong in all of these sorts of ways and represent an ideal that we can identify with. Rather, he's a deeply flawed character in many ways. He's a drug taker, etc. And there are many things about him that are dysfunctional, but that's what makes him a good character. Um, and in the same way as Matt was talking about Faramir as an ideal ideal in many respects. We should also recognise that these characters are not intended to be ideals that we aspire to all the time, but rather they expand our horizons, enable us to imagine new ways of being, imagine, enable us to expand our vision of different ways of living in the world. And rather than thinking in terms of, let's have these characters that generally end up being like the characters that they would be if they were men, but just with sex changes. What we need to do is imagine different sorts of stories beyond the male-oriented stories that we tend to have about superheroes, etc., and have a broader vision of how life can be, how other forms of 
virtues can be manifested within the world. Stories driven by curiosity rather than good versus evil combat, etc. These sorts of things. It's one of the things I enjoy about um, the work of someone like Hayao Miyazaki, Spirited Away, Howl's Moving Castle, etc. That he writes interesting female characters that aren't strong in that stereotypical way in Hollywood. They're not kick-ass um, princesses or anything like that. They are interesting in their own right. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just laughing that you use that word. It's so weird. Um, no, but you're absolutely you're absolutely correct. That's um, And that's a point I hadn't really considered, that just the, those plot lines. I do wonder, however, I don't know, I'm thinking of somebody like, I'm thinking of N.D. ND Wilson and his couple of books, uh, Notes from the Tilt World and Death by Living. Have you, you chaps read those? I haven't. Oh, they're 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 great, uh, Matt. Uh, no, you, I, I you... alas, I haven't. They've been on my list for a while. So, oh man, they're 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 great. But he has a lot about this, about the kind of characters that uh, I mean, the whole thing, the whole the whole narrative and author analogy is shot through the whole thing god as author us as characters thing as story the world is spoken they're 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 great um but he talks about this tendency to think through everything as a story right and and he says it's true and at the same time it's cliche uh at this point but but we need to really deeply think through the kind of characters we're becoming and and the kind of story that we're living and then looking through at the biblical story Looking through, you know, it's in a sense looking through Adam, looking through Christ, the second Adam, looking through the the fight and all that. There, there's, we keep returning to some of these stories because they're they're part of they point to the ultimate story, right? The ultimate good versus evil plot. But then there's that other the, there's that other factor of thinking about the relatability factor, and then thinking about the way we read scripture and the way we preach scripture. And this is where I go. And I, and, I, and I think about the way Scripture's stories and Scripture's characters, um, they're at once, you know, relatable and unrelatable, right? Who, who, who can't relate to so much of the Psalms, so many of the Psalms, right? Uh, and, and that's like one of the big selling points. Calvin, Calvin talked about the way that the Psalms are there to, you know, provide us, um, in a sense, a way to to express all the emotions of the soul. Like he didn't, he, yeah, his biographer says that he didn't have, he didn't quite have the language of emotion accessible to him until he started really commenting on the Psalms. But, but at the same time, it can, it can curse, it can curse us because oftentimes our, we, we look at these stories and we're like, I don't relate. It's so old. It's so different. This is what I see with, this is a typical problem I see with like high school students or college students, or whatever, who they read these narratives and like, I don't know, man, I, that's not something I would have done, or I don't really get it, so it's not, it's boring. I don't know, I'm, I'm rambling at this point. But but this, the, the, the way the relatability factor, factors in the way we read scripture, and factors in the way we, we preach scripture, I'd be very curious to see what uh, Alistair or Matt, you have to say about that. So, um, I'm sure our listeners would too. Can I, can I ask about your guys' thoughts on one particular practice that relates to reading scripture? Because... Um, there's a, there's a sort of technique that I've heard in some places where people will say, um, you know, here's a, a passage from the gospels, place yourself in the story where, uh, which person are you in this particular story? Um, 
are you the person who is, you know, responding to Jesus well? Are you the person who's not, um, et cetera? You know, if you're, are you the woman at the well? Are you the disciples who are going? Are you, you know, that kind of identification. Do you guys think that that sort of uh, strong identification is a legitimate way of reading scripture where we, in one sense, literally place ourselves within the story? Or um, should we be more interested, and maybe this is just a bad question, but should we be more interested in the text's foreignness and just allow it to meet us uh, on its own terms um, as a kind of alien thing? I, what do you guys make of that that hermeneutic practice? Because it's always struck me as weird, and I don't know what to make of it. <laughs> Alice, you go yeah, first. So I found that a bit of an odd approach, too. I don't think it's it tends to domesticate the text to the limits of our imagination. So we project all these images about what Jesus is like to me or whatever it is upon the text rather than meeting it on its own terms. I do think that we are implicated or brought into the realm of the text, though. Read recent, um, over the last few decades, debates about the text is a world that we enter into. Yeah. People like Hans Fry and others, I think they are making a very important point there. That there is a narrated world and we enter into that. And yet that entrance is something that requires effort and an exercise of imagination from us. It's not something that just automatically happens. It's a process and it's a sanctifying process. Um, when you're reading the story of... It's also significant to discuss maybe the difference this probably as another um, podcast for another occasion but discussing the difference between exemplary preaching and typological preaching yeah so exemplary preaching would read the story of abraham going into egypt and um, perception of pharaoh saying that sarah is his sister these sorts of things and say abraham wasn't being faithful at that point um, he left the land he should have stayed in the land etc and um, what is the land that you're leaving, whatever it is? Um, whereas really the significance of that story is found chiefly in the fact that Abraham Abraham is living out the pattern of the Exodus in advance. And that pattern is being pre-capitulated within his story. And later it will be lived out in the life of his, his offspring. And understanding it on that level will lead to identification, but identification in a very different sort of way than that immediate association in terms of moral exam um, example. Well, yeah, no, that I think I think it's it's two halves. You know, so Karl Barth called the you know the, the the Bible like in a sense reading the Bible is like entering the strange new world of the Bible, but uh, it, it is a strange new world, and that has to be emphasized. It, it we've got a we've got a social dislocation a cultural dislocation a temporal dislocation and at the same time the strange new world of the bible is one we're supposed to live in it's it's the world it absorbs the world it's one we're supposed to live in and so i think of just the bible study i had at my own home last night with our small group we were looking at john chapter six 
and looking at the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and then walking on the water and then his response to the people. And John wrote the thing telling us, and, and what we did was we spent the first chunk talking about the strangeness of the text. You have to understand, okay, so the feeding of the 5,000 and the references to the manna and the Passover, this is all talking about New Exodus. This is all talking about Christ coming, Christ being the prophet who is to come and all that kind of stuff. So the strangeness, the stuff that is different, that isn't just, oh, well, I'm in the 21st century, I'm going to get that immediately. The flip side, though, is that there is, a, there is a turn in the text when you start to realize Jesus is trying to expose the hearts of the people. They're coming for the food. They're, they're, in a sense, they're seeing, the, they're seeing the bread in the sign, not the sign in the bread. They're looking to the gift, not the giver. And then all of a sudden, there's this turn where the people were, were, were around around the Bible study. Everybody in the group's like, man, I do that. Like, I do that same thing. I look at God giving me X, Y, and Z, and I miss the fact that it's God giving. I miss, and, and there's, so there's that, there's that double layer where I think it's, I think there's an appropriate time where it says, who are you in the story? You're not Jesus. You are, you are the crowd that consistently misses what Jesus is doing in your life. Open your eyes to the signs, etc. But that only properly works when you've done the strange work, in a sense, first, when you've done the digging into, like you said, Abraham, you're supposed to look at Abraham, you're supposed to somewhat identify, but you're supposed to identify after you've understood the typology, after you've understood the grand narrative implications. And so I think it's a yes and a no. Um, and Perhaps the best text to illustrate this is 1 Corinthians 10. We have all this weird stuff about our <laughs> yeah. father's our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea and all drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them. And this rock was Christ. Now, that's really weird. And then it goes on to say, now, all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition on whom the ends of the ages have come. That they're all, all of this is about us. It's all written for our sake. But there is this act of imagination and this act of understanding that must precede understanding the exact way that that applies to us. Right. And, the, and that's achieved through looking at these stories through the lens of Christ. Yeah. And, and that it's that's the part that the relatability factor foreshortens. If you're so... I, I, I think that one of the main jobs of a preacher is to make the text relatable. You are supposed to relate the world of the text to the current world. That is my job. But the problem is that so often people cut... The, the part out where they say, but let's look at that world first, right? They, 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 they you know, what's his face? His two horizons, um, Thistleton. Gadamer. Uh, wait, oh, Gadamer, and then Thistleton bites off him, right? So they just have one horizon. We, we, we just keep our horizon, and we kind of peer back there, and we, 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 we see something that looks like a shadow. Well, in our world, you know, buildings cast shadow. That must be a building instead. No, it's actually a mountain. Um, and that mountain has biblical implications. And so, so there's, that's the part that I think this focus on relatability causes us to miss is guys do, do, do the front end work where let it be strange first before it can be familiar, you know, see the other person before you like truly. And that's the funny thing is uh, going back to Shakespeare, I thought the whole comment was idiotic, mostly because the most relatable book in I read in high school was Hamlet. 
Hamlet was the most relatable thing I ever read in my high school literary career. After we did a bunch of analysis, after we read the thing and f figured out all the strange phrases and all that, I thought, this is a guy who's having trouble making choices because he's caught up between, and it was a really like flattened reading afterwards, but, but there's, in, in all these literature and in the scriptures, you do the hard work, you, you let it be strange first, and then you start to, patterns of recognition emerge, and, and, and all of a sudden it can be relatable, but it's, it's relatable at a second level, a deeper level, a thicker level, but you have to push for it. Um, and also because that is an exercise of transformation of the reader. I mean, that's the key thing, that it expands your horizons, as, um, as Matt was talking about, and also it's an exercise of your moral imagination, as you were talking about, that there's this expansion of the reader as he engages with that, he or she engages with that story. They are changed through that encounter. And when we're reading scripture and just, or any other text, and focusing upon this initial immediate reaction to it, this immediate sense of identification, where we are now, um, we're missing out. Yeah. The act of change. Um, I, and one of the points that I've focused on in the past that I think is important here is the loss of this act of moral imagination more generally and the focus upon this immediate response of um, immediate reaction of empathy or attachment. What are your thoughts, Matt? Um, I, I was just going to say, Matt, Matt, are you there? Um, I think Matt actually might have had trouble and dropped out. But we, we, um, we are actually, in any case, out of time this week. Um, but... Uh, Alistair, a last last word there before we wrap up? Um, I'll pass it over to you. Okay. Well, hey, uh, that is our discussion for the week for Mere Fidelity. Um, looking at, again, this is one of those things that demonstrates you see these you see these stories, you see these stories out in the world, these cultural narratives, these cultural issues, and, and really all of them can be seen in light of the gospel. All of them have deep theological implications when analyzed properly. Um, so, with that, we're going to wrap it up, say uh, thanks for listening in, may the grace of God be with you, and uh, once again, if you want to share this, feel free, we will have show links uh, over at mereorthodoxy.com, and we hope to, to, to uh, be with you next week, may the grace of God be with you.